Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Weekend Sports Wrap podcast for Tuesday, August, what is it, 29th? Tuesday, August 29th. Appreciate everybody coming back. Welcome to the show. Uh, Remember to please rate this podcast wherever you're listening to it. You can listen to it anywhere you'd like, any of the podcasting platforms, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you want to listen to this podcast, you can listen to it anywhere. And please leave a rating when you do. I'd greatly appreciate that. You can listen to it on sharedmedia.com as well. We'd greatly appreciate that as well. Uh, On August 29th, it is Tuesday, August 29th. We're going to get into the sports here in just a little bit. But first... Let's start off with what the day is today. I haven't done one of these in a while, honestly, but I wanted to start off an intro with something a little bit more interesting. Not really, actually, interesting is the wrong word. A little bit more fun, I guess. None none of these are really that interesting now that I'm looking at them. Uh, National Sports Sampling Day. Don't know what that means. No idea what that is. Uh, From the definition, the quick definition that I read, it's just try a new sport. Okay, don't know why we need a day for that. Sure, go ahead. Uh, National Lemon Juice Day. I think lemonade will count if you do nap for National Lemon Juice Day. I think you're okay with lemonade, so we'll just call it Lemonade Day. National Lemonade Day, that's what we'll call it. It's also, this is a weird juxtaposition, to be honest with you, having this one next. Uh, It's also International Day Against Nuclear Tests. So, you know, have a lemonade and maybe try out some football while you're protesting against uh, nuclear tests, I guess. I, I don't know why this is a day either. Um, according to Hoyle Day, literally no idea. I, literally no clue what that is. No idea. I have never heard of according to Hoyle. I have no idea what that is. Uh, and it's also National Chop Suey Day. I do know what that is. I do like me some chop suey. So maybe I'll have some chop suey tonight. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I'll get me some chop suey tonight to celebrate National Chop Suey Day. Uh, more importantly, more importantly, today or I guess this weekend, this past weekend and, you know, just through to today, essentially, we were celebrating week zero in college football. Football is finally back. If you're familiar with this show and a, a lot of the, the previous episodes, you know that I am much more of a college football fan than I am an NFL fan. I just find college football pomp and circumstance, you know, all the all the traditions and stuff like that to be much more enjoyable. And I just think the games are more fun because of just the randomness to it, I guess it it just, there's stuff that you'll see in college football that you would never dream to see in the NFL. Uh, And we're going to start talking about some of those right now. Uh, College football is back. And with week week zero, it wasn't the greatest week zero in terms of matchups that we usually see. Um, Usually is probably the incorrect term, but in previous years, you know, you, I can't say usually because it's only been a few years that they really started doing those uh, week zero big matchups, but we didn't really have those this year. We had the, we had um, the Notre Dame versus Navy game, but that happens every single year. Um, It was in Dublin, which was cool. They had that last year, uh, Northwestern and Nebraska, and that was the only game Northwestern ended up winning all season long. So they didn't end up winning any other games when they are on American soil. They won their only game in Dublin, Ireland, which is pretty funny. Um, But Notre Dame Navy, that game kind of went the way you expected, to be honest with you. Notre Dame completely dominated in that game, uh, handled Navy. It's probably an easier game for somebody like Notre Dame to prepare for because they've played, they play Navy year in, year out. Like that's a a constant game that to play because, you know, uh, Notre Dame, not in a conference. I don't think Navy's in a conference either, Um, but neither of them in conferences. So they don't have to abide by the conference game rules or anything like that. So they can kind of just play whoever they feel like playing. Uh, And those two teams always end up playing one another. It's usually towards the, I think towards the end of the year, usually. Um, But this year they put it at the beginning and Notre Dame, with that, uh, the constant 
playing against Navy, they kind of become familiar or have become familiar with um, the the style that is the triple option. They kind of know how to defend against it. Coaches have seen it plenty of times. Uh, and Navy, you know, and, and I saw a couple people questioning it, like how is it still, you know, the year of our Lord 2023 and we have Navy and all of the armed forces for that matter running the triple option. But I love it, man. That, that's one of the unique wrinkles of college football is you got teams like Navy, Army, and Air Force. And, you know, Air Force comes out every season and they're a pretty solid football club. Um, and then Navy, Navy and Army, but mainly Navy, pre-2020, pre-COVID season, uh, you could put like 10 bucks down on them winning almost eight games a season for a good like 12 years in a row they were a pretty solid football team not in 2019 they were 11 and 2 in 2015 they were an 11 and 2 as well so you know it's not like they're they're only you know they're stuck in the triple option mainly because it's it's a hard thing to defend against with all the teams that they're playing all the different teams that they're playing and it's also something simple to teach the people that are there to learn the offense, essentially those guys that obviously they're enrolling to go into, you know, the Navy or the army or the air force to actually serve. Um, so they're not there to go play football. So it's, they need something that they can teach, you know, uh, college players and who have probably played, played college football before. I don't, I don't think, you know, or not college football, excuse me, high school football, uh, before going into, uh, the armed services. And I think that, um, you know, for the most part, those guys are all, are all familiar with football in general, but they're not like the five-star recruits or anything, or like the four-star recruits that you're going to get uh, with your typical college football program. So they have to be able to teach these guys or these players uh, a scheme, essentially, that is easy to learn if you're trying to find it offensively and hard to defend against if you're just doing it for the first time or periodically, because that's the only time you're ever going to see it. It's usually only those three teams that are running the triple option. Uh, I think Georgia tech does it a little bit. Or they used to do it. Uh, that was kind of their style as well for a little while. Um, and maybe another team that I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I can't, but it's like four teams, essentially four to five teams that run that offense and have been since, you know, basically the dawn of the wishbone slash triple option offense. And they do it effectively. Like I said, I mean, you could put, you could put $10 down, you know, five years ago, for um, Navy to win t- eight eight plus games, and that was that would be a pretty solid bet, even longer than five plus years ago, ten plus years ago, and that was a pretty good solid football team that would go on to win go eight and five, nine and four, like year in year out for a solid ten year run there. Um, and Air Force too, Air Force has been a pretty solid football program for the last uh, ten or so years. So you know it, it's funny to see like when it, it feels like it happens every week when somebody like Navy or Air Force or Army really uh, are playing somebody's favorite team, and they realize this team they're like this team. What are they running? Why why do they run the triple option? What year is it? And it's all it always happens, but I love it. It's it's one of the great wrinkles in college football seeing Navy and then when it, inevitably at the end of the season when Navy and Army play, face each other and it's just basically 48 run plays for each team and maybe nine passing plays because they're both just running triple option the entire game. It's great. It's great. Who doesn't love college football? Um we also had a couple of a couple of other great moments throughout the week uh, throughout the weekend, and I'm going to go through a list because I made some notes about some of those moments uh, that just screamed college football for me, and I loved it. Uh, Vanderbilt they were playing at home against uh, Hawaii, which Hawaii I feel really bad for you for that road trip that had to have been brutal. Um, they were playing a home game in the midst of one of their end zones, like out of bounds area, so behind the end zone. 
uh, they're kind of they're under construction over there. So it's not done. The construction's not completed. So in the broadcast, you can see these construction areas that have, you know, it looks like a construction area. They're trying to build. I don't know what they're trying to build. I think they're trying to build some sort of Jumbotron, uh, but they didn't have it up yet. And they still played the home game. And uh, so without the Jumbotron, they had to use a giant crane. And the giant crane basically lifted up this big video scoreboard that they're going to end up using and putting on pillars, obviously, but they don't have the pillars up. So this big crane lifted this uh, video board up and you, they used that as the scoreboard. So it was just this giant video build a video board seemingly floating kind of, it looked a little goofy, uh, but it was being hung by a giant crane uh, that was actually just there to use to be used for construction. Um, but they used it to help with the video scoreboard. So that was, if you see the pictures of that, it is, it is pretty funny. Um, what a moment for Vanderbilt. They won, too. They beat Hawaii. That's, a, like I said, tough road trip for Hawaii. But they won in the midst of all the construction, so congrats to Vandy. Uh, Sam Hartman, who was the quarterback of Notre Dame. We talked about them in, uh, a little bit ago. Uh, he is the quarterback. He came into the game uh, sporting, uh, you know, before, you know, the, the, he was walking to the locker room with his outfit on, and he was sporting a necklace. He's wearing a necklace made of bones from his own ribcage. That is true. I'm not making that up. You can look that up yourself. That is a real thing that happened. I couldn't believe it either, but here we are. Sam Hartman, not to mention Sam Hartman, I, this this is probably a guess, but I think he's been in college more, because he, he's a sixth-year starter, I'm pretty sure, um, and I think he's been in college longer than Justin Herbert has been in, the co- in college and the NFL combined, which is, that says everything you need to know about Sam Hartman. Hey, you know what? Here's the thing. Sam Hartman, I don't know how, he, how high he's going to go during during the upcoming NFL draft. This will be his last year. This is it for him. Um, but I have, and I have no idea where he's going to end up going in the NFL draft, but maybe he is aware that maybe he's not going to go very high or somebody has told him, Hey, you're not getting looked at as much as some of the other quarterbacks. And that's the case. maybe he's just taking advantage of it. He's like, look, I'm not going to go very far or I'm not going to go very high in the NFL. I'm not going to make a lot of money there. Uh, it, as far as he can tell right now. So I'm just going to do as much as I can in college. And that's what I'm going to do. And you know what? If that's the case, props to him. I appreciate that. I, pre- I If you would just come out and say that, I would appreciate the honesty. That would be really funny. Uh, but sixth-year quarterback, and he came into the game against Notre Dame, uh, against Navy, excuse me, and he was wearing a suit and his jacket and stuff, looking real fly, and he was wearing a necklace made out of the uh, of a bone from his own ribcage. So maybe a little crazy, too, but that's, you know, that's yet to be seen. San Diego State quarterback. They played UMass, if I remember correctly. Um I think that's correct. I think it was UMass. Uh, San Diego State quarterback Jalen Maiden was being pressured in the backfield and in an attempt to get out of a sack, tried to throw the ball away like any good quarterback would do. Uh, and when he threw the ball away, as I said, he was trying to get out of out of a sack. So he was kind of far away from the pocket, kind of scrambling a little bit. And when he tried to throw the ball away as he was trying, essentially getting dragged down for the sack, uh, as he tried to throw the ball away, he hit the back judge who was back there square in the face, just right in the face. He threw it like all, it was all arm. He was basically getting dra- drugged down uh, and you know, he didn't have his legs on underneath him or anything like that. So he just threw it and hit the back judge just square in the face. And the back judge was like probably... 10 feet away from him. So just like 10 feet away from this quarterback and the quarterback was sprinting away, trying to get out of the, or get out of a run out of a sack. He starts going down, starts getting chased down. He throws it and hits the back judge just right in the noggin. This poor old guy, this old, older gentleman, not, not old, not old guy, but older gentleman just takes it right to the face. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a bad look, but it was pretty funny. It made me, it made me laugh. I don't think San Diego state was playing 
UMass. I think I'm incorrect there, but I don't remember who they were playing. I can't remember off the top of my head, but you guys will correct me. You know how this goes. Uh, my One of my favorite games of the week, uh, just in general, Louisiana Tech versus FIU. Louisiana Tech was up 22 to 14 over Florida International University with a minute and one second left in the fourth quarter and attempted to go for the two-point conversion that would essentially put the game out of reach. They get the two-point conversion. It's 24-14. That's a two-point game or a two-possession ball game, and that game's essentially over. So what they do is we're going to go for this two-point conversion. They lined up three offensive linemen up by the far sideline, essentially by the out-of-bounds marker. So they got three offensive line linemen down there. They have a receiver behind those three offensive linemen uh, and two offensive linemen and a tight end in front of the quarterback, which is it's you know dead set in between the hashes. Uh, and so they have the two offensive linemen there and a tight end. They hike the ball. Uh, and then, be- well, actually, excuse me, before the snap, actually, they motion that wide receiver uh, over from the left side, the far side of the field, where all the three linemen are, over towards the quarterback. And as he's running, they snap the ball, and it's a jet sweep. Those three linemen on the far side of the field end up really doing nothing uh, because it's a jet sweep. I guess it was just there to kind of drag uh, defenders over towards those defense or uh, towards those offensive linemen. They really end up doing nothing because it's a jet sweep to the opposite side, and the jet sweep ends up getting um, uh, it's a loss of about two yards uh, that make them it, actually about three yards. So Louis. Louisiana Tech going for two to try to put the game away. They run a jet sweep uh, with three offensive linemen on the far side of the field. That ends up losing them about three yards. It was blown up almost immediately. So on the ensuing drive, FIU, they have a chance to go down and win the game or tie the game at the very least. Not not win the game because it's 22-14, eight-point deficit. Best you can do is a tie game. So looking to drive down the field, win the game. But here's a little kicker. Uh, to this point, up till this point, up till this ensuing drive, they were five of 12. For four total yards passing. And then. During that drive. They got a false start call. uh, On the offense. For everyone except the center. It was a good day for FIU. They ended up losing. Obviously. They went 5 for 12. For four yards passing in total. So that drive barely got off the ground anyways. And they finished the day. 5 for 12. Four yards passing. I think Navy had more yards passing. Than FIU did. And Navy was basically running the triple option all game. That's. That's saying a lot. That's hard to do. Uh, Finally, my favorite moment of the week. Personally, my favorite moment of the week. The New Mexico State offense. Uh, They were playing UMass. They were playing New Mass. I see the colors are throwing me off. New Mexico State was playing UMass. Uh, The New Mexico State offense was in the red zone, and Diego Pavia, the New Mexico State quarterback, took the snap looking to pass, stepped up in the pocket, and then UMass defensive end Marcus Bradley came flying off the right edge. If you're looking towards the end zone where the quarterback is looking, came off the right edge uh, and reached out trying to sack Pavia. He went to, you know, Pavia stepped up in the pocket. So he, so uh, Bradley tried to reach to try to grab him. Uh, but Bradley grabbed a, f- a handful of face mask, just a handful of face mask. And uh, Bradley was going down at the time. Uh, so he grabbed a face mask and in that momentum caused Pavia's helmet to do a full. I thought he died. I thought Pavia just had his neck snapped into oblivion. But thankfully, the helmet basically just turned all the way around because he grabbed his face mask. Bradley was going down to the ground. And when he get, and when he grabbed Pavia's face mask, it basically just rotated the helmet 90 degrees. I thought Pavia had just died on the field. I thought it was over for him. I thought he was dead, uh, but he was okay. He was fine. And what happened was my favorite part of the whole moment. Uh, he's running basically with his helmet turned all the way backwards. Like his helmet is has done a whole 90 degree turn. The face mask is now towards his, the back of his neck. Uh, and so Pavia doing what any good quarterback was doing, 
always looking downfield, uh, and he's trying to complete the pass with his helmet turned on backwards. He can't see anything and proceeded to throw the ball out of the back of the end zone. Safe play by Pavia. I thought he was going to complete the pass for a touchdown. That would have been the greatest touchdown in the history of football, just in general, not even college or NFL. I don't care if Pavia throws that pass and he hits a receiver in the end zone with his helmet turned backwards. That would have been the greatest pass in the history of football ever. But that's not what happened. Pavia does the smart thing, makes the smart play, throws the ball out of bounds, and they get an extra down out of it. I thought Pavia had died first. At first, I thought he had died. And then second, when he was running around with his helmet turned on backwards, I thought he threw the football and it was going to be caught by one of his receivers for a touchdown. And I would have sat here in awe and amazement that that did just happen, but he just threw it out of bounds. The safe play. Uh, and that was that. That was New Mexico State. Uh, I didn't see if they ended up scoring in... Uh, on that drive i did not see that actually but you know just a smart play by pavia all the way around but that's my favorite moment i love seeing the the helmet turn night a full 90 degrees so it's on backwards or i guess 180 degrees it's not 90 degrees it's 180 degrees because it's yeah it's half a circle so 180 degrees man i hey guys this is why i'm doing this and not math uh he did a full 180 degrees so that his helmet was all the way around and then he's running sprinting trying to find an open man even though he can't see and he just throws the ball out of bounds a truly truly a magnificent moment uh for college football but that was it that was week zero man and then and there were great other great moments too uh caleb williams was i mean he's a heisman he was the, the heisman winner last year one of the uh, probably the best quarterback in the country almost certainly the best quarterback in the country he is looking to become uh, a number one overall pick and is probably going to be number one overall pick if all goes correctly and he doesn't get injured or anything like that uh he is you know going to be a very popular number one overall pick in mock drafts upcoming but he had a fantastic day against san jose state that defense is still very questionable for usc caleb williams had a, a you know that usc tim had a slow start and it feels like that's kind of a commonality for them um but they picked things up in the second half just ran away with it um and yeah, it was just a good week zero, man. Plenty of random things happening. That was just with like eight games on the day. Those are all the storylines that I got. Storylines, quote unquote. More like moments that I got for uh, for that weekend. And uh, it was awesome. I mean, Vanderbilt played with their scoreboard being hung up by a crane, guys. By a crane. Sam Hartman walked into that locker room and he had a necklace on made of his own rib cage. You can't get anything out of it. I, it's incredible. There's nothing like... College football. God, I love it. Louisiana Tech ran a jet sweep on the two-yard line that lost them three yards, and they had three offensive linemen on the other side of the field that ended up doing nothing. I love college football. FIU, they had four yards passing, people. Four yards. They almost had as much yards passing, or they had less yards passing than they did completions. That's incredible. And then they got a false start for everyone except the center. Incredible. I love college football, man. It's the best. You can just, there's just stupid stuff that happens all the time every week. And that's what makes college football so unique and so, so great. Beautiful podcast listeners. James here. It is time to hear from another one of our sponsors, Alpine Climate Control. If you're a listener of mine, you know that Alpine Climate Control has been supporting the stuff that I do for a very long time, years now. And they are now officially sponsoring the Weekend Sports Wrap podcast as well. 
If you're looking for somebody to set up air conditioning systems, air conditioners, that sort of thing, Alpine Climate Control is the people to see. They also have air conditioning tune-ups. A good idea if your AC is not working properly, if it's not functioning properly, if you're standing in front of it, you're like, this should be a lot colder, and it's not, probably needs a tune-up. So check them out for all your air conditioning needs and AC tune-ups. They also have furnace systems and fireplace inserts. We are slowly approaching the fall months, and it is a good idea to get those things figured out and worked on now than as you enter the fall months. But they're creme de la creme, the cream of their crop, their specialty is their outdoor living spaces. They've got seating, fire pits, lighting, barbecue grills. If you're somebody that like, likes a little backyard barbecue, then they are the people to see to set you up. That's Alpine Climate Control. Stop by their showroom. They're on Coffee Avenue just before Sheridan College and a little bit after Starbucks or go online to alpineclimatecontrol.com and you can see all of their offerings there as well. That's alpineclimatecontrol.com. And again, big thank you to Alpine Climate Control for sponsoring the program. Okay, let's move on. College football, the best, but we're going to move on here. Uh, it's going to stay a kind of in college football, not really. In co- I mean, sort of, I guess. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about, because I touched on it last week, uh, the Untold Swamp Kings documentary. Um, and I, I want to just kind of compare it side by side by something else that came out uh that past week that I hadn't seen yet. Um, and that was uh, BS high, which was directed, not directed by HBO max, but it was put out on uh, max HBO was directed by HBO essentially. Um, and it is really good. It is unbelievable. Um, everybody remembers Bishop Sycamore high school. If you're familiar, like in any sort of sense in uh, football, like if you're familiar with just football in general, you've probably heard of Bishop Sycamore. You know what that is. Um, and if, for those that are unfamiliar, it was a prep high school essentially that was playing. I am. This is the flashpoint, I guess, of the documentary. They were playing IMG Academy. IMG Academy is probably the best high school on planet earth to go and learn how to play sports. Essentially they play sports and then basically get educated as a second. You don't really talk about that though. Um, but they're basically the best Academy to go to for anything, you know, sports related football, especially as well. Um, and IMG Academy, this was in 2021, if I remember correctly. Uh, and they were playing Bishop Sycamore high school on ESPN as a ESPN high school football showcase type of game. Um, and it was like their fourth game of the season and that sort of thing. Um, but essentially as that game was going on on ESPN, the people around it, because IMG Academy was just blowing out Bishop Sycamore High School. And this is, you know, IMG Academy wouldn't schedule a game with somebody, a team that is not very good. You know what I mean? Like they're kind of going through the plethora of good teams throughout the country in terms of high school football. Um, and Bishop Sycamore High School was supposed to be this great team, this great prep academy. Um, and essentially, while this game was going on, because IMG Academy was just blowing the doors off of, uh, off of uh, Bishop Sycamore, uh, people started to figure out wait a minute, I can't find anything on this Bishop Sycamore High School. This doesn't exist. What is this place? And uh, essentially, that's the flashpoint of the documentary. It talks about the before and kind of the after, um, how this kind of all came about and who is to blame, essentially. Uh, There's a top five con man of all time, in my opinion, of all time in that documentary in Roy Johnson. He's the head coach of Bishop Sycamore High School. He is, every time he smiles or opens his mouth throughout that documentary, I get, uh, the hair stands up on my arms and my legs. I get goosebumps because he is, that's a slimy dude. That's a slimy dude. And you'll find out more in the documentary. I just implore you to watch it. Um, But it's tough for 
like on the, for the Swamp Kings documentary to have that next to it because BS High is so much better. It is everything you would have wanted from the Swamp Kings documentary put into a different documentary. Like everything I ever would have wanted is it's literally all the stuff that is untold about Bishop Sycamore High School and that entire situation, except, you know, it's not Florida. The Florida one was just so um it was essentially an Urban Meyer puff piece, I think, for the most part. And that made me that made my head hurt when I really thought about that because I mean that guy is not a great person. Like the, the fact that we're to a point now, he's we're coming off of what is it, two years ago where he had probably the most um one of the worst downfalls of an NFL head coach that I can remember. I didn't last a full season in Jacksonville uh, because of a lot of the outdoor, a lot of the uh, the stuff outside of the locker room, but a lot of the stuff of the inside the locker room is too. Um, a lot of the Jacksonville players have gone on record and said they did not like Urban Meyer. Uh, his coaching style was not good, um, and it showed because they were not good that season. And then basically since then they've become a better, uh, a much better team. Um, and you know there are different different reasons for that as well, but I, you can't say that that's not part of it. Um, but the fact that it was kind of framed as the, the this Swamp Kings documentary was kind of framed as a um, a way to prop up Urban Meyer just in general. It really felt like an Urban Meyer puff piece. Um, and you know they talk about the you know the two championships that they won over a four year period, and that's the thing, and that's what it's highlighting really in that documentary. Um, and that's not what anybody wants to know about those teams. You know, like if we're talking about a documentary that we want to have on championship consistency over the past, I mean, 15 years, you would do one on Alabama. They've won six championships in like 15 years, essentially. Um, and, and been to uh, nine championship games over the past 15 years. So if we're talking about something like, I want to know the ins and outs of what happened during that championship run. That's what I want to hear about on an Alabama side. Like I'd want to learn more about Alabama in that sense. Um, but aside from, you know, the national championships that they won and whatnot, the personalities that were on the team and just the stuff in general that they glossed over in that documentary that could have been so much more interesting. Uh, Tim Tebow as the head was, you know, the knight in shining armor. He was Mr. Perfect, essentially. And they even kind of show him like that in the um, in the in the series, which was uh, very corny, in my opinion. They showed him like the first shot of Tim Tebow in in uh, this documentary is you see him and they're kind of prefacing who this guy was. And then you see him and the first shot you get of him is over the shoulder and he's reading his Bible. And I'm like, yeah, OK, this is definitely you're, this is Tim Tebow, obviously, um, but he was the the knight in shining armor. He was, you know, the guy that would come forward and kind of lead them to where they wanted to go. And so he was going to be the guy that was going to lead this uh, band of players into the new, you know, in, into where they wanted to go. Their ultimate goal, essentially. The other thing really quickly that I will say that I think they really did incorrectly was how they kind of portrayed Chris Leak, and it was kind of unfortunate because Chris Leak was a pretty decent player when he was at Florida, um, but they kind of just portrayed him as the guy that was not necessarily getting in the way, but the stopgap in between what would become their great, 
you know, glory, even though he won a championship with that team. Um, but it, it, like with the fact that they were putting him in there with Team Tebow, it felt like they were kind of leaving him up as the lamb for slaughter, essentially. Um, but he had a decent career at Florida. Like that really wasn't fair. He finished uh, with 88 touchdowns, 42 interceptions. Not, you know, fantastic by any means, but definitely a decent player for 140 quarterback rating, 11,000 passing yards. It's not like he was a bad player. Uh, 61% completion percentage. It'll make more sense if you watch it, but the way that they kind of portray him as kind of this guy that was in the way of Tebow, if that makes sense, is somebody that uh, they weren't going to, they're not going to be able to reach their full potential until Tebow comes in. And that was kind of, I, I thought they did him pretty dirty there, to be honest with you. Because, um, like I said, Chris Leak, he won a championship with that team. He didn't have stellar numbers that season, but he led them to a championship victory. So, I mean, that's not totally fair what they were doing with Chris Leak. Um, but besides that, uh, you know, Tim Tebow becoming this knight in shining armor, the guy that they were going to ride on the heels of, ride on the back of, uh, to take them to a uh, another national title. And around him, you had guys like Aaron Hernandez, who... If you are unfamiliar with Aaron Hernandez, he uh, he killed somebody. He is a convicted murderer. Well, was and then he committed suicide when uh, it was in in prison. So they barely touched on Aaron Hernandez. They didn't really talk about him at all. Uh, it was also told uh, apparently in 2008 he told his lawyer that uh, I mean he he loved smoking the the ganj if you will. Uh, and he said he told his lawyer that every time he was on the football field he was high on weed. That's not talked about at all they don't talk about anything like that whatsoever uh so aaron hernandez just brushed by nobody talks about him at all uh cam newton is another one that i thought would have been really interesting because he was supposed to be almost the guy that followed tim tebow like tim tebow followed chris leak he was supposed to be the guy that was going to follow tim tebow and be the guy that led to uh led florida into you know uh into the sunset after tim tebow had left but uh, he was never questioned. He was barely brought up. I mean, I think he was mentioned maybe one time in the entire documentary. Um, and prior to transferring to Auburn, where he would become probably the greatest college football player that I have ever seen, um, he was accused of cheating as well as arrested on burglary charges for allegedly stealing another student's laptop, the latter of which uh, his father, Cecil Newton Sr., still believes to be blown out of proportion. Uh, Grant uh, Newton's seasons... Uh, at Florida were like a tiny part. So they don't talk about him that much, but still, I mean, this was the guy that was supposed to follow Tebow and I would have liked to have heard his perspective on a lot of what was going on there. And just in general, I think that would have been a very, and they probably approached him and he did not had declined, but the fact that they barely talked about him or anything that was going on at that time when he was in Florida, uh, was disappointing. I am not kidding. I think they talk about him one time, like in the entire document. And it was like, it's like a slight mention that I think Tim Tebow says that their recruiting class is very good because they brought in blank, blank, Cam Newton, blank. Like that's it. I'm pretty sure. Um, Riley Cooper was on those teams as well with, with, uh, if you're not, uh, if you're not familiar with Riley Cooper, he, uh, became, he came under fire, uh, in 2013 for using a racial slur at a Kenny Chesney concert. Uh, and it is safe to assume that uh, he, he had other, uh, you know, I don't want to say he went and said the racial slurs all the time, but he probably had some uh, destructive behavior or non-constructive behavior uh, when he was at Florida as well. That would have been interesting to hear about. The Pouncey Twins as well. They were into Florida during this time. All around a very solid team. But 
it's more the personalities that we want to hear about. Uh, the fact that their person, I mean, he, they were like best friends with Aaron Hernandez uh, during that time. And then afterwards as well. And I'd like to hear about those stories as well. Um, and then how those personalities mixed uh, with Tim Tebow being, you know, the guy leading the charge. Uh, Carlos Dunlop's another one. He had a DUI arrest that kept him out of the 2009 SEC championship game, a game that they ended up losing. Um, and, you know, if they don't lose that game, they're going on to play in another national championship. That would have been very interesting to hear about uh, Carlos Dunlop and what that caused and the, the risks that that caused in the locker room. Uh, Percy Harvin had an alleged fight with a wide receiver coach. And also, like, the other thing is with... Urban Meyer, and he's really, I think, the most guilty of what um, of me disliking, and I think a lot of people disliking this this documentary uh, is because it really feels like it's essentially executively produced by him. Um, for most people watching the the this docu this docu series, they would think that that the 2009 season, uh, the SEC championship where they lost, would have ended uh, ended his tenure, ended Meyer's tenure, but that's not true. He left after the eight and five season in 2010 and they, they don't even like they, you, if you were watching this docuseries, you would have thought that he left in 2009 and that's not the case. It was after 2000, uh, in 2010, after 2010, he briefly touches on his addiction to Ambien during the time. And that was kind of, but it's like very brief. That was kind of interesting to hear, but it was incredibly brief, like almost nothing. Um, but you know, the fact that they, and I understand why they wouldn't, this would have been a better docuseries if Urban Meyer had no part in it whatsoever. Um, he has, it's known that he's had multiple affairs at Ohio State and Florida, one of which was with a student. And obviously that's not talked about whatsoever in, in the show. Um, and they're really, it, it just feels like a, um, it's, it's a puff piece. It was a puff piece for not necessarily uh, Tebow because, you know, you can't really puff him up anymore than he already is. Uh, but you know, like urban Meyer, it feels like urban Meyer's step into trying to get back into coaching and college football in the, the creme de la creme for me for this entire terrible documentary, to be honest with you, um, was urban Meyer saying, uh, he is in regards to a wide receiver, defensive back or something like that. I can't remember the name of the person. I think it was Avery Aikens. If I remember correctly, um, somebody had hit a, a woman and he said, that hitting a woman was a one strike and you're out, um, you know, situation. There's no second chances for those period whatsoever. And I found that so ironic because if you're aware of urban Meyer's situation, you know, that he, uh, kept on Zach Smith, who was a, I believe he was weight training personnel, if I remember correctly, or wide receivers, no wide receivers coach is what he was. He was a wide receivers coach. Um, and Zach Smith had a documented domestic, a domestic abuse scandal, um, while under head coach Urban Meyer at Florida. And then when he went to Ohio State, when Urban Meyer went to Ohio State, he brought Zach Smith with him. And Urban Meyer knew that and knew all that was going on. The domestic abuse was happening. And he brought Zach Smith with him to Ohio State. So to hear him say that on the documentary that, you know, the hitting of a woman, the domestic abuse of a woman was a one strike and you're out situation. You do not get second chances for that. It blew my mind that that slipped through the cracks of all the things that could have slipped through the cracks in this documentary that felt like it was executive executively produced by Urban Meyer, uh, that that slipped through the gap. I could not believe that that was something he said with everything that we know about Urban Meyer. Um, that that was something that was said and then kept in the documentary really just blew my mind. I could not believe that it was like the, the people who were behind the camera were actually like, let's keep that in there. A little journalistic work, just one little tiny bit of journalistic work here in this, um, 
weirdly funded uh, documentary uh, that felt like it was funded by the University of Florida, which kind of brings me to my over my overarching point I wanted to make about just in general, um, because Swamp Kings is not the only one that's having this problem. I think the Johnny Manziel one wasn't that great either, to be honest with you. I thought a lot of that was pretty uh, told in the untold documentary. I thought it was all pretty uh, well told. There was a couple pieces in there that were uh, that were untold, if you will. Um, but then afterwards, there's some interviews you can go and look up where Johnny Menzel is saying some of this stuff is, is not true, which it's like, okay, then what are we doing this for? The Manti Teo one, I think, is very good. I think that one's very solid because a lot of that stuff, I think, was actually untold. Um, so I think that one's very good. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, I think we're kind of getting to a point which really frustrates me because it kind of started with the last dance, uh, with Michael Jordan. And I think that one, that one's still pretty solid. I think that one's pretty good, but it's really the telling of that story from the perspective of Michael Jordan and the people that were in the locker room. So they can kind of tell the story how they want to. And we're seeing that a lot happen a lot more with sports documentaries, which is something I do not like that we do not want these people telling their own story essentially um, and taking that as the truth verbatim. If that makes sense, we had the Jeter one. That one was not good. In my opinion, I thought that one was a lot of, you know, he just wanted to follow in Jordan's footsteps in that sense. And it was a lot of nothing like that one just was not interesting at all. Um, And then magic Johnson did one recently that also apparently I didn't watch it, but that one apparently also was pretty similar. Uh, And and that one was rubbed up against um, the, um, the uh, winning time series that was going on over at HBO, which is very good. And that kind of tells the story of magic Johnson in the first few years. And he was with the Lakers as well as Jerry Buss in that entire situation. And that that's very good. That's a very good series. Um, Jerry West doesn't like that. He, the way he's portrayed in that movie uh, or in that, in that series. Uh, but by all uh, intents and purposes of the people around him, uh, the people around that locker room at the time say that's pretty accurate to what he, uh, how he actually is. And again, it's a character. They're playing a character, you know, they're kind of hyping it up a little bit, you know, and I understand that. Um, but just the fact that there were kind of producing and sports figures in general are trying to produce, you know, as they get into more of the media game, we're going to get a LeBron James one inevitable. It is inevitable. We're going to get a LeBron James one. He controls a decent, a pretty large stake in terms of the media game with other sports figures. Um, and I think we're going to get one of him and it's just going to continue on. That's going to be produced by other, um, other, other sports figures. They're going to produce their own documentaries and then sell them to these big, uh, companies. And we're just going to have, we're going to, uh, people are going to take that story or those stories as verbatim. And that is the incorrect way to do that because those stories are all kind of being told in a way that makes them look their best essentially. And if you're having a documentary that follows somebody who has, and you know, the swamp Kings one is a perfect example of that who has done stuff in their past that is not, you know, and uh, in, in po- looked at in positive light and to see them kind of brush over it, then you should realize, wait a minute, this Ness isn't necessarily telling the whole story. And that is a bad documentary. Like that's just how it, we should look at those in general. Um, and I think the more of these that come out, especially, and I think the last dance kind of got away with it. If the last dance came out today, I think we'd maybe scrutinize it a little bit more. Also it was 2020. Everything was shut down. Uh, they really had the limelight for, uh, all of sports in general uh, for a decent amount of that time when they were when they were doing that that show. But if it was brought out today, I think we'd be, maybe scrutinize it a little bit more because it really was just the story of really Michael Jordan told from 
his own lips, you know, uh, and they got into some of the grittier stuff like the gambling controversy and how much he loved to gamble. Like, like that's the sort of stuff he really did get into um, his dad dying and stuff, his dad being killed. Uh, that was all interesting in that documentary, but it, it is straight from Michael Jordan's mouth for the most part. And that can lead to some discrepancies in the overall story and the truth of the story. It'd be like if, like Barry Bonds making makes his own documentary about uh, himself essentially, and then which you know then I wouldn't put it past him uh, if he did make a, a ten part docu series about him chasing the home run record, and that's all he talks about. He doesn't talk about the fact that he was caught using steroids. He was convicted of using steroids. Uh, he wouldn't talk about that whatsoever. He maybe brushes over it very quickly, a slight glance. But then he continues to talk about the home run record. Like, that's kind of the direction in which we're going. And that's a a big shame for documentaries because documentaries should be a way to kind of tell this history in a way that's harder, that's easier to get around uh, for people that don't like to want to read it in books and stuff like that. You know, people that don't want to have to read through an entire book to kind of hear this story uh, about, you know, Urban Meyer at Florida or Johnny Menzel or Manti Teo or whatever all the other untold ones are. Um, it's just an easier way. It's an easier entry into, uh, the history of that particular person, that particular figure, or that particular moment in time. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for a break to hear from one of our sponsors. That is right. A sponsor of the program. We have our first sponsor on this program in the history of the program, and it is Jack and Kathleen Wood. At 307 Real Estate. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, I get it. You got to navigate the real estate market. It is impossible. Everybody on House Hunters makes it look super easy. They just go into three different houses and they pick the house they want. Boom, bang, boom. Episode's over. They have a house. It's not that easy, ladies and gentlemen. And Jack and Kathleen Wood will be able to help you throughout that process. And even the people in House Hunters, they have a real estate agent. And these people, Jack Wood, Kathleen Wood, at 307 Real Estate could be your House Hunter-esque real estate agents. So if you're looking to buy real estate, sell real estate in the Sheridan area, these are the two people you should call Jack at 307-763-1249 and Kathleen at 307-461-7203. So listeners, one of the only things I'll ask from you is to support the people that support the show. And that includes these two, Jack and Kathleen Wood at 307 Real Estate. Thank you very much for the sponsorship and make sure You contact them for all of your real estate needs at 307-763-1249 and 307-461-7203. All right, we're going to move on now. Um, I did rant on that one a little bit long, but, you know, I had had opinions to express. I do recommend you watch BS High. It is is unbelievably good. That's one of the good sports documentaries uh, versus Swamp Kings, and it sucks for Swamp Kings because that one... That one came out right next to BSI, and BSI is so much better um, than Swamp Kings is, unfortunately. But we're going to move on. No, enough documentary talk. Um, let's talk about probably the biggest news in the NFL this past week, I would say, probably. That's probably not crazy to say. Uh, the 49ers, they traded Trey Lance uh, to the Dallas Cowboys for a fourth-round pick, um, and that's uh, concluded an injury-riddled, tumultuous two-year tenure uh, for Trey Lance with San Francisco. Uh, he only started two games, finished with just 797 yards total, five touchdowns and three interceptions. You can't really blame him. Uh, you know, injuries are just freak accidents that happen. Uh, he made just two starts as a rookie and then lasted just one game last year before suffering a season-ending ankle injury. Uh, so we really have not seen, I don't know, I would say we haven't seen him up to his full capability. Some people would uh, argue differently, obviously. Um, but... 
I think this trade for the 49ers, not the one that they just made to the Cowboys, but the one that they traded up for him in 2021 to get him, uh, traded up from the 12th pick to the third pick uh, in the 2021 NFL draft, is probably going to go down no matter what happens with Trey Lance now. And Trey Lance could turn out to be a very solid quarterback for Dallas if they move on from Dak Prescott or something happens to Dak Prescott, whatever. Um, he could end up playing pretty well. And if that's the case, they would make it even worse for the 49ers. Um, but I think we can we can probably say that this is one of the worst trades in NFL history, period. Um, I think this is... It's a good thing that the 49ers are good uh, for basically everybody in that front office. It's good for them because this would be a uh, this normally i think would really set teams back a long time um and we have yet to see i think the full implications of that trade uh for the most part but uh they you know the 49ers have an incredible roster of players i mean they've drafted really well even without those um two first round pick or those three first round picks um and they've you know constructed a very very solid roster around um you know some pretty mediocre quarterback play, to be honest with you. Um, but in 2021, they drafted, uh, they moved up 12 spot, uh, from the 12 spot to the three spot, so nine spots by trading away three first-round picks to the Dolphins in order to uh, get Trey Lance. Those three first-round picks are what eventually turned into Jalen Waddell, Tyreek Hill, and Bradley Chubb for the Dolphins. The 12th pick in that that the 49ers traded out of was eventually drafted, uh, used by the Cowboys to draft Micah Parsons. Um, who is arguably the best defensive end on, or I guess edge defender on planet earth right now, the 10 picks after Lance. Um, so four, five, four, five, six, and so on and so forth were Kyle Pitts, Jamar chase, Jalen Waddle, Panay Sewell, JC Horn, Patrick Sertain, Devonta Smith, Justin Smith, Micah Parsons, and Rashawn Slater. Six of those players I just named six of them are already pro bowlers. So, this could go down as one of the probably should go down as one of the worst trades um, in the history of the NFL worst draft day trade for sure. I think in the history of the NFL. Um, and again, we haven't seen anything happen with Trey Lance. Uh, we haven't seen, I think him to his full capability. I don't think we've seen him at his best yet. Um, he's still young. He's only 23 years old. So who knows where that, what we're going to see out of him in Dallas. If he even stays in Dallas, um, he might, you know, be there as a backup for Dak because Dak has struggled with some injury issues over the past few years. And he, Trey Lance, should be able to slot in pretty nicely as a backup role in if in case anything happens with Dak Prescott. Or or uh, Jerry Jones is going, in his mind, big brain mode, which I you know doesn't happen very often, if I'm being honest with you with Jerry Jones, uh, in terms of making football decisions. Uh, and he's thinking that Trey Lance could be the future uh, you know quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. He's going to learn under Dak Prescott for a year. Uh, maybe, I think it's two years, because Dak Prescott is a free agent in 2025, so it's two years. Uh, he's going to learn under Dak Prescott, really get fully healthy, and then when Dak Prescott is a free agent in 2025... He lets Dak walk and then Trey Lance steps in. I mean, that's me going full conspiracy, uh, you know, conspiracy theory. It's entirely possible. That's what they're trying to do. I don't think that really makes a whole lot of sense, to be honest with you. But in the end, honestly, if you're only giving away a fourth round pick as for, you know, trying to trying to grab somebody that is going to learn under your starting quarterback and then end up replacing him essentially that's a pretty good get if you're if you're jerry jones that would be a, a great move if and that's also if trey lance ends up actually being a good quarterback i mean he struggled with injuries and you know and i don't think he ever really got a full chance with the 49ers to try to take over that job from jimmy g so we'll see i don't know 
what they plan to do with him. I, I, I just think that he's going to, I mean, clearly he's just going to be a backup for now. He's going to sit behind Dak Prescott, uh, maybe learn a little from Cooper Rush as well. You know, why not? He's the, he's also the backup goat. Um, so we'll see, but it'll be very interesting because if you're able to, if Dak Prescott walks in 2025 and then you, you know, Trey Lance ends up being a pretty decent quarterback, that's a great deal for the Cowboys. If that's something they're looking to doing, cause he Prescott right now, four year, $160 million, uh, million dollar contract that runs through 2024. Um, and then in 2025, he's a free agent. So who knows? We'll see. Cause, and that's, you know, a pricey contract. If you're able to get I mean, the best way to win championships in the NFL is, from what we've seen so far, is to get your quarterbacks on the cheap and basically build everything else around them, except for maybe Patrick Mahomes, because he's just, you know, a god amongst men. But you look at a lot of the other contenders, uh, the Bengals, the Bills, uh, you know, the, the Chargers are looking to make that move as well, but they just signed Justin Herbert, but, you know, you get what I'm saying. Um, but really, the Bengals, the Bills, the Chiefs, for the most part, up until uh, a year ago when he, when uh, or a couple of years ago when Patrick Mahomes signed his deal, uh, to keep him in uh, Kansas City for the next 10 years. Uh, that was something they were riding on as well. They were able to afford guys like Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey at the same time uh, because they were getting Patrick Mahomes still on his uh, on his rookie deal, on, on a cheap deal. So that's something the Cowboys are looking at, obviously. So uh, we will see. We will see what the Cowboys do. It's a very interesting move for the Cowboys. Uh, but right now, for right now, it's just a backup role, obviously. But we'll see what it turns into. I'm very intrigued to see what happens uh, from here on out for Trey Lance. Um, and the, the 49ers, well, 49ers, are, they are very lucky that they are a good team, just in, like a very good drafting team as well. Those three first-round picks would have actually been very nice for them. Like they could have had a very, very good team, even with Jimmy G as quarterback, because Jimmy G is very much a mediocre quarterback in this league. Um, but if he had the weapons that he would have had if they would have drafted pretty well around uh, around Jimmy G, I think he would have been just, I think he would have been enough to take them to uh, a Super Bowl victory. Maybe even two because they've been able to do it with Jimmy G the last few years in general as well. And they made a Super Bowl, uh, was it three years ago? So, I mean, still, uh, it'll be interesting. And now they got uh, Brock Purdy back there as well, who's also, I mean, we have yet to see what he can produce, uh, I think, uh, on a full slate of games as well. Uh, and teams are kind of planning for him in the offseason and that sort of thing. We're kind of, uh, it, it, it'll be interesting to see what Brock Purdy can do after a full offseason. He just had uh, UCL surgery as well. He just had Tommy John surgery on his right arm in that game against the Eagles at the end of the 49ers season. I mean, that was brutal because I felt bad for Brock Purdy in that game because, I mean, he couldn't throw. Everybody was watching, and if you weren't an Eagles fan, I think uh, you probably felt bad for Brock Purdy because that was tough to watch. The guy literally could not throw. I mean, they were putting, I think, McCaffrey in there at quarterback at times because Purdy could not throw the football anymore because he tore his UCL. So it'll be interesting. The 49ers, they... They're they're lucky they're good. Their general manager and their coach, they're lucky that that is a good football team because they would probably be looking for different jobs at this point if that did not pan out and they ended up being a not-so-good football team. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Trey Lance. Uh, I'm rooting for him just in general because I think he's really... He part of it's really been bad luck for him, in my opinion. I just don't think he's lucked out in in many areas in terms of injury um, and just the situation I think he got put in as well was kind of difficult because Jimmy G kept you know, playing to a decent enough height that allowed Jimmy G to have that opportunity and in order to keep the starting uh, QB position. And Trey Lance never really uh, got that great of a chance, I think, in order to try to make a role of it himself. So it'll be interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. We'll see if the Cowboys move on, uh, try to slide him in there, quarterback in a couple of years, maybe. Uh, if they move on from Dak Prescott in a couple of years, maybe. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. 
But uh, that's all future stuff. You know, maybe a future podcast. Three years down the road, we'll be talking about, I'll look back on this and be like, I nailed it. Or I'll be like, wow, I was completely wrong on that. Well, we'll see. That's a couple of years down the line. Uh, all right. I think that, ladies and gentlemen, is going to wrap up the show today. Uh, I want to thank you all very much for tuning in. Uh, and remember to rate this podcast. Please go tell your friends about it. Tell all your buddies about it. Hey, go listen to this guy. He's from Sheridan. He does a sports podcast. And it's, you know decent to okay you know you can say that part that's fine uh and uh, i greatly appreciate it. i want to thank you very much for tuning in again please leave a rating on all those pod- podcasting platforms as well i'd greatly appreciate that uh and yeah we'll catch you next week this has been the weekend sports wrap podcast and uh, i have been your host james timberlake